he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up to the mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became bright as flashing of lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves, and they did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you, look at my son, for he is my only child. A spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams. It throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. I begged your disciples to drive it out, but they could not. You unbelieving and perverse generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Even while the boy was coming, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion, but Jesus rebuked the impure spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus had did, he said to his disciples, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them, so that they did not grasp it, and they were afraid to ask him about it. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. How about another shout out for the uh, band, huh? I just think they were great. I could, sore throat and all, I could listen to Amelia for the rest of my life, so thank you. Phenomenal. I see a bunch of chloroseptic up here, so. It, so, uh, let's pray. Lord, thanks for this chance to be together as your people. We are grateful, Lord, that this great news that we have just heard is a story that makes us wonder and has us humbled and makes us realize once again that it really is much bigger than ourselves. We pray that you will allow us to wonder together about what your spirit is trying to say to us through this story and how we might respond and how we might find our own place in your glory and how we might discover the way by which we share your power with the world. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the history of scientific and mathematical research is populated by the names of hundreds, thousands of brilliant people, not the least of which 
was a 17th century French physicist and mathematician named Blaise Pascal. We have Blaise Pascal to thank for the early invention of the calculator, for time-tested theories around the fluctuations of barometric pressures, and some of the foundational theorems behind the principles of probability. And if you think I understand anything of what I just said, you are sorely misled. Toward the end of his life, and he died at the age of 39, Pascal turned his brilliant mind toward the considerations of philosophy and religion. His writings on these subjects are considered classics even today. Included in these is the philosophical argument known as Pascal's Wager, which posits that all human beings bet their lives on whether God exists or whether God doesn't exist. Pascal posed that the rational bet in this regard is to believe and to live as if God existed, because if God exists, the payoff is infinite, and if God doesn't exist, well, it didn't matter anyway. All in all, Pascal is a compelling figure in the history of human intellectual development. After Pascal died, though, his housekeeper, while collecting all of his clothes, noticed that there was a stitching inside his coat as if something had been sewed into the lining of his coat. So the housekeeper undid the stitching and found within the lining of the coat a piece of paper. And on the paper was Pascal's writing, and it began with these words describing evidently a spiritual experience. The year of grace, 1654, Monday, 23rd November, Feast of St. Clement. From about half past 10 at night until about half past midnight, fire. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, God of Jacob, not of the philosophers and of the learned. Certitude, certitude, feeling, joy, peace. From about half past 10 until about half past midnight, fire. Now, it is not left to us to understand or even try to explain what happened to Pascal that night of November 23rd, 1654. His only word that he uses to describe it is fire. Suffice it to say that it was an encounter with the living God that likely not only altered the course of his life, but was so seminal that the account of it he sewed into his coat as if sewing it into his soul for no one else to know or to see other than him. From about half past 10 at night until about half past midnight, fire, the note inside your coat. The history of humankind, among many things, is a history of our encounter with the transcendent. In Judeo-Christian terms, we call this theophany, which in the Greek means the appearance of God. Theophany is the moment, that deeply personal, private, spiritual moment, when a person encounters in some mystical way the reality of God. It's a moment that can barely be described, and it's seldom a moment that can be understood by anybody else. It can happen standing on the beach watching the sunset or staring into a dark night of infinite stars or, or watching your baby take its first breath or sitting in a sanctuary listening to sacred music or, or waiting for the news of a loved one's surgery. 
For the disciples, it happened locked up in a room, and the sound as of a rush of a mighty wind descended upon them with tongues as of fire. It is this unexpected moment when God appears and we are convinced of God's presence, of God's existence. Usually it's not some supernatural pyrotechnic moment that Hollywood might try to capture on screen. More often, it happens to the likes of you and me in very quiet and gentle ways. For me, one of my theophanies came at the age of 10, listening to my grandfather pray the Christmas prayer during Christmas Eve service. Don't ask me to explain it, but just take my word for it, that in that old man's prayer, God was as real for me in that moment as the plastic of this pulpit, more so. If we had the time, we would take the next several minutes for you and I to search our own personal histories and to come up with those moments when God became very real for us. Instead, we're going to have to give that to you as homework. But the truth is, not only have we likely had these moments, but like Pascal, we have, in a sense, sewn them into our coats, sewn them into our souls. We are who we are because of our encounter with God. Victor Frankl, Holocaust survivor and author of Man's Search for Meaning, recounted that just prior to his detainment and transfer to Auschwitz, he took the magnum opus of his life, his doctoral dissertation, and sewed it into the lining of his coat. His best chance, he thought, of holding on to his life's work. As soon as he arrived at the camp, they, of course, took his coat, and with it, his life. Shortly afterward, they gave him the coat of another prisoner who had already been taken to the chambers. He put it on, reached into the pocket, and found in the pocket a little scrap of paper, and on it were the words of the Shema Yisrael, the most sacred of Jewish prayers. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Frankl said at that moment, God was real. And the moment remained stitched, if not inside his coat, inside his soul. Each of us has a theophany stitched inside our souls. So Luke does his best, along with Matthew and Mark, to describe this encounter of Peter, James, and John, and they, what they have with Jesus on top of the mountain. The truth is, is it an experience that I'm sure not any of us is really supposed to understand, the changing face of Jesus, the dazzling white clothing, apparitions of prophets past, clouds descending, voices speaking. It's a little too much, a lot too much for us to understand, but at the end of it all, Luke reports that Peter, James, and John kept silent and told no one of the things they had seen. Now, that's something we can understand, because who would dare trust that story to anybody else? Who could ever understand someone else's experience of theophany? 
It reminds me of Lucy in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, when quite by accident she makes her way through the back of a wardrobe and all of a sudden finds herself in this strange land that she'll soon learn is Narnia. And it's a very real and a very full land of fawns and witches and the great lion Aslan. And for her, it's so very real, except that when she comes back and tries to tell her brothers and sister that she's been to Narnia, they think she's gone nuts. What silly talk, they say, of Narnia. Because no one is really supposed to understand this deeply personal experience we have with the divine. Remember the shepherds of Bethlehem? Do you ever wonder what happened when they eventually went home and tried to explain to their family and friends what had just happened? You know, angels appearing and singing, babe lying in a manger, peace on earth, goodwill toward all, promise of the Messiah. Can you imagine what their wives said? You know, time to take away the flask. But these are the encounters, right, etched inside our souls. And they're real. They're very real. And with these experiences come power. There's nothing more powerful than the divine reality that has made his way inside of you. There are many things that I wonder about in this world, but I don't wonder about how God appeared in my life and reminded me that I'm not alone, that I'm dearly loved, and that my life has meaning. If I have any power in my life, if I've done any good in my life, if there's any purpose to the days of my life, it all traces back to this note inside my coat. It makes me think of a young woman in one of my former churches. I'll call her name Julie. Julie had a very horrific childhood centered around many years of sexual abuse at the hands of a family member. And Julie remembered during those years as a young girl praying that God would stop these awful attacks on her body and spirit. But God never did. Never stepped in like a child would think a loving God would. So it was an easy leap for her to believe that there was no such thing as a loving God. No Pascal's wager for her. And then one morning, as a middle-aged woman, she stopped at the local convenience store for the Sunday paper, and down the street she heard the peal of a church bell, a simple church bell in the steeple of the church where I happened to be pastoring. And for some reason, she knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that that church bell was for her, that the bell tolling was for her. She didn't know why, she just, she just knew. And she said to herself, the Sunday paper can wait, I will go to this place. And it happened to be the Sunday when the good people of that church were gathered to weep and to console one another in the wake of an awful tragedy that had occurred within our church family. A young man had killed his parents. And she sat there in their pew and she watched this church family trying the best they could to love each other in their grief. And she heard the message for the first time that God doesn't make these awful things happen and God doesn't prevent these things from happening, but that God simply loves us in the midst of it and often through each other. That's what she heard. And that was theophany. And Julie, from that moment, jumped into the life of that family of faith and used every gift she knew to share 
the love that she had, that she had experienced in God, and that love that she knew that she had to share with somebody else. And from that moment, that church bell was the note inside her coat. The power of God's love for her became then the power of her love for other people. Do you see what I'm saying? It's in these moments of our life when we are reminded of the unmistakable and the powerful presence of God, these notes that in turn get stitched into our souls, that there is a power given to us in those moments intended for other people. It may explain why the gospel writers are insistent to include in all their stories of the disciples' powerful mountaintop moment. They who, that they have stitched into their souls that the first thing they encounter when coming down the mountain is a man and his son who are desperate in need of power. A father who has reached the end of his rope, a son who is possessed by some destructive spirit, and no one theirs knows what to do. And Jesus is so disappointed that no one knows what to do. No one seems to think that they have the power. This power of God's love with which they have been entrusted is a power, Jesus says, that you can use for other people. You see, that's the thing. These intimate private encounters we have with the transcendent are intended for a public use. These personal notes of divine encounter stitched into our souls are the very power that God uses to propel us into the hurts of the world. Because you see, it is these theophanies that remind us that it is not a dog-eat-dog world. It is not every man out for himself. It is not, you know, she who dies with the most toys wins. It is not just the bottom line of some financial spreadsheet that's the goal line. It's not how much you have in your 401k that is the you know, gold medal. It is these encounters with God that tell us that you don't have to hedge your bet. It is as real as the sun that pours through those windows that God loves us and that God uses to love, use us to love our neighbor. It is as sure a bet as you are going to find. That's why I think it's safe to say that the most real thing you do in your life is something you do for someone else. It's the most real thing in your life, what God has done for you, and in turn, it is the most real thing you will do in your life, what you do for someone else. The most genuine gesture of your life is the sacrifice you make for someone else. The most real use of your time is the time you give to somebody else. The most real number you write down in your checkbook is not the number of your mortgage payment. It's not the number of your IRA contribution. It's not the number of your long-term care insurance installment. The most real number is the number that is written down on that check for the sake of God's love for his people. Maybe that's what good old Charles Dickens had in mind when he wrote his little tale of Ebenezer Scrooge, the old miserly man counting every last penny of his sorry life. And then comes theophany, or at least the visit of the spirits. And these visits are more real to him than the gold in his safe. And the first of the visits is from old Jacob Marley. Marley is his old business partner who is just as miserly as he, and Scrooge can't understand why Marley is bound in chains. And Marley speaks of having missed the great opportunities of life, and Scrooge says, but, but you were always a good man of business, Jacob, and Marley cries, business? 
Mankind was my business. The common welfare was my business. Charity, mercy, forbearance, and benevolence were all my business. The dealings of my trade were but a drop of water in the comprehensive ocean of my business. Somewhere along the way, each of us has been visited the bell has tolled, the spirit has appeared, the fire has descended, the presence has been felt. And the note is written and stitched inside of us. It's the most real thing that has ever happened. And the most real thing yet to happen is what you do with it how we place our bet, what we make our business. Let us pray. We thank you that you are a visiting God, O oh Lord. <clears throat> we thank you that you are the God who reveals yourself in your son Jesus and reveals yourself in power and in mystery and in love and in grace often in those quiet moments when we are sure beyond the shadow of a doubt that you are real. Lord, help us to live as if you're real. Help us to place that bet. Help us to know that you are the God of love and grace and mercy, using you, using us, to be instruments of that grace and mercy. And so as we bring these commitments before you, O oh Lord, we pray that you will warm our hearts and that you will remind us of how real you are and that you might use us that others may see how real you are in our lives. All this we pray in the powerful name of your son Jesus. Amen. Please come forward. All right, you guys are welcome to drop your offertory cards in the watering can up front as we have one more song left for you. You unravel me with a melody you surround me with a song of deliverance from my enemy till all my fears are gone. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. From my mother's womb, you have chosen me. Born again to a family. 
God is love. God loves us, and God uses us to love others. So let's go out this week.